Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. It still makes me laugh that the Democrats think that they get to decide all the parameters of this conversation about the debt ceiling. Because, of course, they don't. But what they want you to believe is that somehow and in some way, if Republicans don't do what Democrats want, it will be the quite literally the end of civilization. The way they parse it and they phrase it. I mean, this was a member of, of Biden's economic team. I think her name is Heather Bushy, B-O-U-S-H-E-Y, talking about the idea of responsibility. Well, we have been watching this closely and certainly waiting for the news in terms of what tax receipts would look like. And Janet Yellen's, um, Secretary Yellen's uh, letter yesterday indicated that this deadline is, is, more, is more urgent than we had thought. But certainly the deadline was already urgent. Um, we know that uh, this is Congress's constitutional responsibility to make sure to increase the debt limit so that the... Congress's responsibility is to increase a debt limit? Or is Congress's responsibility actually to spend within their means? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Let me bring in Noah Rothman of National Review. He is also the author, if you don't know Noah, of The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. He is also the author of Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America. You can find both of those books at Amazon.com. Democratic fishers over the debt ceiling fight are growing. That's an article that you have over at National Review, and that comports with a story that MSNBC did that says, my gosh, the Republicans, their their messaging is working, and people see the debt ceiling fight as the Democrats' fault, and if we default, we're going to blame the Democratic Party. We can't have this happen. Talk to me about where we are in this. Is somehow Congress's responsibility just to raise a debt limit willy-nilly? And if that's the case, why even have a debt limit? Right. No, I mean, if you actually look at the the record, the debt limit fights actually do fairly uh, restrict uh, the spending trajectory in Washington. And they've been the occasion for a variety of uh, negotiated deals, bipartisan deals, over spending. Um, Democrats are attempting to suggest here that this is totally unprecedented, wholly unwarranted, really beyond the pale. And they spent the last month, I guess, just saying that. Meanwhile, Republicans put a bill together. Republicans put a spending bill together, uh, a variety of other uh, programs, uh, cuts to programs, social welfare programs, or re- uh, restrictions on accessing them for able-bodied eligible recipients. Uh, and they got a bill passed. And now they're in the driver's seat. Uh, Democrats should have been probably taking this opportunity to present a competing uh, bill that wasn't just a clean debt ceiling limit, or even if they just wanted a clean debt ceiling limit, like put that put that on the floor, get your members on record. But they didn't do that. They outsourced negotiations to the White House. The White House insisted that it wouldn't negotiate until Republicans managed to present some sort of a of a of an uh, argument on there that justifies, demonstrates that they're united on this. And the anticipation that they wouldn't be able to do it, an anticipation that I kind of had, too. I was surprised by the degree 
the fact that they managed to get this through, albeit with a the narrowest possible margin, 217, which is exactly what you need to pass a bill. But they got it through. And now Democrats are saying, well, you know, we're, we're not going to negotiate on spending outside of the budget process. We'll talk about spending in the budget process, sure. But not the debt ceiling. That's just, that's a British too far. It's a very narrow process argument. And process arguments tend not to convince the public. Not at the all. Principal argument, when the principal argument is we're spending too much. That's and, easy to comprehend. And you Democrat's take a, position is incomprehensible. And you take a look at this May 9th meeting that Biden is supposed to have with leaders in Congress where the White House has already announced the debt ceiling is off the table. Well, if you tell the Republican Party they're not negotiating fast enough, they've been delaying too long in getting this bill out, everything is the Republicans' fault, here's a meeting three weeks before Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, (laughs) says, the end of the world is coming on June 1st, people. We got to get this done. And Biden's team, through Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House Press Secretary, says, we will not be negotiating on the debt ceiling. It certainly makes the Democratic Party look intransigent and that leads to the question of who is where are actually these fissures that you're talking about who's cracking and who can apply the pressure to biden to get something done yeah first a quick note on how badly served democrats are by their echo chamber in the press um because if they had at least one you know voice of reason in there a tenth man who would argue the the alternative position just for the sake of argument they might have encountered the idea that their arguments are contradictory, that running up against the debt ceiling, even getting close to the debt ceiling, is this apocalyptic event. But no, we won't negotiate even slightly from our position. We won't budge from our position even slightly. And their position hasn't moved, even while Kevin McCarthy's has. Kevin McCarthy wanted pre, pre-COVID level spending caps initially. Not anymore. Now we're talking about 2022 caps. Just last year, last year's spending level is where the caps are in this, in this bill. And that movement has not been reciprocated by Democrats. They appear, as you say, recalcitrant. Um, but not every Democrat is on board. As you said, you had, even before Republicans managed to pass this bill, you had Democrats like Debbie Dingell in Michigan, Greg Landsman in Ohio, and Senator Joe Manchin saying, listen, we're going to have to negotiate. Voters gave the the Republicans control of the chamber from which spending bills originate in the Constitution. That's the political reality with which we must contend. And in the interim, since that bill has passed, you've seen some more moderate members of the Democratic caucus, but nevertheless Democrats, uh, coming out and also supporting some negotiated settlement, uh, which implies movement on the part of Democrats who have otherwise been resistant to moving at all. So Republicans are united in this, mostly united. Democrats are not. Their position is eroding. They're seeing people abandon, you know, seeing their their trenches thin out as their side abandons their position. And yet they remain committed to this course. And only I can imagine only because the echo chamber in the press is so committed to supporting the Democratic narrative, even though it's becoming politically untenable before their eyes. Right. it, It is always important for people to notice how the Democratic Party can act in the face of facts because they will never be held to account to the facts by the media that doesn't hold them to account. Talking to Noah Rothman, 
of National Review. By the way, you use the term recalcitrant, stubbornly resistant to or defiant of authority or guidance. I used intransigent, refusing to moderate a position, especially an extreme position, and uncompromising. So we were close in our in our terminologies there. Let me change Yours gears. Yours was far more accurate. Though. Oh, well, then look at me. Precision strike. <laughs> All right, so, so far I've got one, and in the course of the times you've been on the show, you've got 406. So, so you're still in the lead. By by just a scotch. Good to know we were keeping track. Oh, we're always but keeping track. Four hundred and six. Four hundred six. Yeah, you might want to write that down. <laughs> You've got another piece, and I originally had reached out to you about it because we've been discussing this on the show for about a year, and about how wokeness will utilize that terminology has infected medicine, and we watch how there are these oaths that new doctors are taking, let's say Columbia Medical School and others, where they're recognizing that we stand on stolen uh, indigenous land and we recognize the disparities in the health system and how we have added uh, to to the bigotry. We see that there is a move in medicine not to actually treat patients as they need, need to be treated, but rather treating them under some other guise of what I could refer to as do-goodery. Your piece, The Anti-Racism Extortion Racket, is coming for your doctor. It, it is rare that I see you engage the concept of racket, of of the... Not not even the more the more I read of you, the more we talk, you have this very unique way of trying to bring about a a position. You explain your position well. Rarely do I see you go full jugular. I don't get that, Noah, from you very often. I thought this was a full jugular piece right here. The anti-racism extortion racket is coming for your doctor. What is it that you are seeing that brought this forward? Well, just. Yes, I'll, I'll t- stick with the, the medical issue, but I've been calling it an extortion racket for a while, and I only started calling it DEI, an extortion racket, when it became obvious that it was an extortion racket. You needed a sufficient evidence to justify the claim. The claim arises um, from, in particular, just to summarize briefly, um, over the summer of 2020, when just about every institution in the United States committed itself to an anti-racist philosophy and rooting out the vestiges of racism that were supposedly embedded in the DNA of these institutions, a lot of institutions committed money, funds, to reparative racial policies. Um, I'm talking about like Citigroup and uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Amazon, big multi, you know multinationals, and um, these a lot of these were deemed insufficient by the authors of DEI and demanded that they uh, commit to racial audits, audits of this money and where it was going and what it was doing. Uh, and when J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, uh, contracted PricewaterhouseCoopers, no small name in the business of auditing, it was uh, attacked summarily because it had insufficiently demonstrated commitment to the cause of anti-racism by not hiring firms that are committed to anti-racism. So when Amazon got around to doing its racial audit, it learned the rules of the road and hired former Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch to perform its racial audit so that all the money goes around in the circle and everybody gets a taste. It's an extortion racket, which brings us to the New England Journal of Medicine, which published inexplicably an incomprehensible essay whose only value, as far as I can see, is that it puts a gun to the head of the medical establishment and compels them to hire DEI professionals to racially segregate medical students for the benefit of their education. 
and it's an incomprehensible essay. It has it makes claims that are utterly unfalsifiable notions which don't belong in a medical journal. Notions like uh, traditional medical education is quote founded in inequitable systems, uh, and that to remedy these shortcomings quote racial affinity group caucuses which is derived from the indigenous theory of an Algonquin term meaning group gatherings of wise counsel in order to prevent these students from feeling inadequate in their education. Now, education into any subject might leave individuals feeling a little inadequate because they're surrounded by their superiors who are experts in their field and they can experience what this uh, essay says is, quote, imposter syndrome. Yeah, good. You're supposed to. That means you commit more to your education in order to alleviate this sense of, in- of incapacity. Um, but the whole point of this essay, as I said, it gets around to it, is to say that this, the whole industry, the medical education industry, needs to hire, hire and promote, quote, facilitators with a, quote, keen awareness of how racism operates at all levels, which is really thinly veiled code for make work jobs for DEI professionals just so we, we take the gun off your back. That's it. That's what this industry has dedicated itself to. And it festoons itself with this incomprehensible jargon and racially uh, bigoted assessments, racial generalizations of people and to ascribe them into categories. And then in order to alleviate the the vestiges of racism, we need to segregate people into racial groups. It's just incomprehensible and doesn't make any sense outside of an understanding that it is just special pleading for more money. So what, what I have been making the argument about, Noah, talking to Noah Rothman of NationalReview.com, is that if one goes down this road, there is no possible way that medical care is better. Medical care has to suffer if this is the focus. If you are more concerned with the pronoun you use with the patient, if you are more concerned with how you're supposed to word something because this patient has this color skin or comes from this part of the world, the actual care by definition has to be lessened. Does anybody talk about what's happened to medicine on that regard while we still have a couple of minutes and and whether or not these kinds of moves these kinds of decisions these kinds of this kind of pseudo-intellectual pursuit has brought down actual care in the united states i don't know if there's any evidence relating to outcomes as you would say um if there were it would be a scandal or at least it should be there are certainly voices within the medical establishment who are sounding the alarm over um, the imposition on clinicians of ideological objectives, irrespective of their clinical practices and their medical education. Uh, and they're not alone. Every institution in America is similarly has at least a, a couple of dissenters against what has become this fashionable orthodoxy, a racialist orthodoxy. Um, but it has not risen to the level that I think you would like to see and what I would like to see is a wholesale rejection of an anti-intellectual philosophy. We haven't seen that yet. But it's bumbling, it's brewing, and this sort of thing, I think, uh, fosters and engenders more uh, resentment than it does a sense uh, that we're alleviating some sort of, or or repairing some sort of real damage here, especially when it's paired with this, uh, with this action, with this clear, uh, you know, request for just public funds for sinecures for people who have the right ideology. So, so taking a different look at the same question. Are we seeing less kids going to med uh, school, less people wanting to be doctors, less graduation uh, rates when people are sounding the alarm? Um, 
Are these some of the alarms that, that you're hearing about that are being sounded? What I'm hearing from doctors is we aren't graduating people who actually know how to save a life. I mean, that's exquisitely disturbing. Uh, again, sounds like talking to people in the medical establishment is where you'd want to be on that one, especially since it's such a leading indicator of, of, a, of a larger problem here. Um, but you can sense, and I, you experience, and I experience, quite a lot of resentment to this sort of thing. The problem is, is that there are real consequences for people in these industries who stick their neck out in defense of really basic, classically liberal pedagogy. That, that is a fraught prospect for anybody who wants to lead a quiet life, uh, a quiet, anonymous life, and do good work in their chosen right. field. That option is being denied you increasingly, which is probably much of the subject of my book, The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, although in fields like uh, food preparation and entertainment and fashion and not necessarily saving lives, although it's much more serious. Noah Rothman, nationalreview.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, you can get that at amazon.com. The Rise of the New Puritans, fighting back against the progressives' war on fun. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz.